Hello everyone, Joshua Gilliland here, one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. With me is the talented Nari Ely in Washington, D.C., graduate of Stanford, and we're here to talk about Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Nari, how are you? Doing great, thank you. I very much enjoyed the movie, and I think we should take a moment to alert everyone that we are talking about the movie, and we are going to be having spoilers. <laughs> so if you haven't seen it, you should turn off now. Absolutely. Uh, yes, this is Spoiler Town, and we're not talking about the 1954 cut that was released in the United States. This is 2019. It's it's the big budget legendary movie. Uh, with Michael Daughtry, who, who directed it. So yes, let's game on and let's talk monstrous liability. So first up, you know, we both have done some legal research into this monster movie. And one of the first things that, that came, you know, comes up in this movie is terrorism and child endangerment. Now, <laughs> you're, you're, skilled when it comes to issues of international law and war and what were some of your thoughts on the terrorism elements from uh, um, Alan Jonah's character? Well, so first of all, I mean, the, the film lays it out pretty thickly by talking about them as eco-terrorists. So it's pretty obvious from the get-go that since they consider themselves terrorists, their goal is definitely to, you know, inflict some kind of social or governmental intimidation and fear, um, all of the things that you would think of colloquially, but also legally as terrorism. Um, it ends up being a somewhat complicated question though and I'd, I'd love to discuss this with you but as to whether or not like assuming that we're in a world now where we've hauled them into court <laughs> whether or not you could actually charge them with terrorism um, because you tend to need a transnational element to it as well um, it's also dubious that they are now to play devil's advocate for a second even though they claim to be terrorists it's actually dubious that they're trying to influence governmental action <laughs> they seem to be bent on destroying the world is that now Josh is that actually terrorism? <laughs> It does bring about a governmental change, just not in the way that you would think it would, because if we're going back to the state of nature and what, what society's left, it's like, yeah, that is political. It's the most extreme with basically, let's go back to the Stone Age. And so that's different. You know, they're not saying, hey, we want you to clean up the earth. We want you to make affirmative changes or it's or we have xyz policies that we demand or we're going to keep terrorizing you yeah it's it's not any of those things it's more extreme but i do think in the broadest terms that it is a definition of terrorism because of what they're trying to accomplish even though it's not relatable to any forms of terrorism that we currently have because no one really wants to go back to the Stone Age. It's, it's imposing their will, their no way of life. outside of this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, in real life, that doesn't happen. But you do see, uh, you know, again, terrorists are extremists and they do weird, bad things. Uh, now, pivoting to... Oh, go on. To quickly add on that, and I think um, we might we might come back to this later, but um, I said that it's a little complicated as to whether or not you could charge them. Um, that was a little bit of a misspeak just to kind of launch into some discussion because the, the trickiest element to this kind of stuff is often whether or not there's an international or transnational element. Um, because then, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm, I researched this, and while the criminal statute defines terrorism 
to include domestic activities that don't have a nexus abroad um, to the criminal punishments, the penalties, the prohibited acts are actually, they have to have a transnational element. It could be you know, oversight in the statute and maybe Congress should amend that, but that's the way that it is. In this movie though, the first terrorist act is in China. Uh, and I believe the second one takes place in Mexico before obviously eventually happening in the United States as well. Um, so undoubtedly this has a transnational element. Yeah, and the raid on uh, Outpost 32 in Antarctica, you know, like, so they are spanning the globe. So there is a transnational aspect, but I don't know if it's the traditional definition of it. Mm. I mean, it's, it's almost like, like the hit on the USS Cole, like, and that definitely was an act of terrorism on a US warship or like attacking an embassy. Like those, right. I think, would qualify. It's just different you know, from what they were doing. The, um, uh, there was a book that I enjoyed in, in my youth by Stephen Koontz called Final Flight. And, you know, the, the premise was terrorists uh, attack a, a USS aircraft carrier at anchor while the sailors are on liberty with the intent of stealing a nuclear weapon to drop it on Tel Aviv. Terrorism. I could just, it's like hit a US asset to get a weapon and then, you know, their, their political objective to take out Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. Kind of similar, except we have Monster Zero or King Ghidorah is the WMD that they're trying to break out, not knowing, not understanding what it is. And like, that's... Being kind of okay with it in the end, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that is super creepy. Uh, even Emma, like she, like her discussion with Jonah, it's like, yeah, it's not what we thought, but yeah. It's like, that's not healthy. Um, we, yeah. call that, we call that crazy and not in like insanity defense crazy as in you crazy. Um, <laughs> it's a monster movie, just not the monsters that we thought. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. The monsters are bad, but not the villain. Uh, exactly. Um, but so to, to get back though, because we have a long list of topics that we could go through. We could probably <laughs> talk for a few hours about this. <laughs> Yeah, let's talk about Emma. You know, I think she became a terrorist because she gave aid and support to Alan Jonah's basically death cult and wanting to go break free all these titans so they could uh, do some aggressive urban renewal uh, and um, uh, aggressive redevelopment uh, on the planet, and, uh, which is not okay if you live in any of those cities that are going to get flattened. Uh, but like that's she provided codes and access and then her expertise yes. along along with the hardware to support them. She became a terrorist. So um, I think what we're talking about here specifically is so there's material support, um, which in its historical use actually can be a little complicated. It's sometimes been used, for example, to prosecute people who helped um, uh, uh, a, terror, um, a terrorist organization or extremist organization with understanding legal mechanics about how they might otherwise actually utilize international law to achieve their ends. Um, but this is not that kind of difficult question. So besides the fact that she is definitely doing terrorist acts herself, because um, I think as, as is pretty obvious her She's, she's actually controlling the monsters to a certain extent with the orca, at least before they uh, realize that things have gotten out of their hands. Um, but even before that, you're right to point out that she's given a lot of value to this group that she knows is a terrorist organization and shares the terrorist organization's aim. 
Um, and so material support um, in federal statute uh, is property, tangible or intangible, or service, including currency or monetary instruments, et cetera, training, expert advice or assistance. I mean, so she pretty much fits the, the bill perfectly. <laughs> um, even if somehow you didn't manage to prove that what she did was terrorism itself, which it probably, very probably is, she definitely uh, lent material support to a terrorist organization. Yeah, and that's all bad, but you really shouldn't take your daughter to work for that. You know, like that is just <laughs> such a really bad example to give a kid of, honey, close your eyes, because there's all these people we just killed outside. Shh. Like, that's not good parenting. And just for, since for some reason they were in California when Andrew got killed, their, their mm -hmm. son but they also lived in Boston, so I have no idea where they're actually domiciled in this, which would, It was not clear in the movie. <laughs> they either took a vacation at the wrong time, or they took their kids <laughs> to San Francisco to hunt monsters, which was stupid on their part, or they had places in both, which some people might do that. Uh, winter in San Francisco should be less extreme than a winter in Boston. <laughs> But, but child endangerment under California law is any person who willfully causes or permits that a child be placed in a situation where his or her person or health is endangered. That giant monsters qualify for that. Taking the, a child into a terrorist activity absolutely would be child endangerment. And the fact she's running around with Emma, being she is running around yeah. with ter terrorists, that crosses into uh, contributing to the delinquency of a minor because, you know, if you're trying to make your minor daughter an eco-terrorist to commit genocide, that's not okay. Like, the law doesn't <laughs> go like, you, you get a mulligan. You know, it's, it's in, you know, because it's, there's an environmental message, it's okay, save the earth. No. <laughs> bad parenting right there <laughs> like you don't do that uh but it's nice madison still re learned values and well, that's that's for a discussion right a little bit later uh, on possibly of through no credit of emma's but <laughs> um but yeah and so i mean when we think about these kinds of cases in in our world as opposed to the world in which there are kaiju. Um, I mean, it's, it's typically involving situations and instrumentalities that are orders of magnitude less dangerous than Monster Zero, for example. <laughs> um, or having your child next to an enormous amount of explosives that you pull the switch on personally uh, to, in order to blow something up that's a really short distance from what should be the most important priority in your life. Um, I mean, we're typically talking about like guns. We're typically talking about like a drug deal happening in your home or something like that. And those are definitely dangerous. But the, you know, the odds that Emma got out of there alive were incredibly low. It's a, you know, it's a miracle that it happened. <laughs> uh, and it's definitely far beyond what the law typically looks at. It would definitely be child endangerment. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Oh, yes. I mean, the number of firearms cases are extreme, you know, with, uh, like, there, one of them was a roommate went outside, and the roommate who stayed inside had their child with them, and the roommate outside shot a gun at the house, child endangerment, and, can, you know, so, like, it's really a slam dunk for being able to go, like, yeah, Monster Zero, 
absolutely child endangerment. Uh, <laughs> and this is gonna. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Petting Mothra? Probably not. I mean, that's supposed to be cute in the door. <laughs> kind of like petting a like a great white shark or an orca or something like that. It's like, oh, who's a good yeah, whale? I was going to say, I'm pretty sure they did not know at that time that Mothra was basically the god of peace. <laughs> I don't think they knew that. She, no, no. It's just, she's a big silkworm. Like, what could go wrong? It's just... It's, she hasn't just tossed a few adult human soldiers aside like they were ragdolls. <laughs> A misunderstanding could happen to anybody. They'll, they'll be fine. They'll be fine. Um, and ironically, those were probably the only guys who survived. You know, like dramatic <laughs> spinal injuries, but they'll, they're fine compared to the guys that got shot. So, or worry. disintegrated, or yeah, <laughs> they'll be fine. Physical therapy. Oh. Be, don't, don't don't worry about Leroy. He's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and this is going to preview something that I think we're going to talk about. Um, a little later today um but also the part at the towards the end of the movie where emma takes the orca um and you know puts herself in an immense amount of danger by drawing monster zero to herself it's an interesting question as to whether or not um uh uh sorry what was her what was her mother's name again so uh madison's the daughter emma's the mother sorry, madison yes so when madison takes the orca off to off to fenway park of course and uh draws monster zero to her is emma liable for the danger that um madison has just put herself in um and it's interesting because in a lot in most circumstances we would say uh yes in circumstances involving guns in the United States for Second Amendment reasons, we've often said no, which is very weird. <laughs> um, so if, if we hold the orca to be a dangerous instrument, like perhaps a car, we can probably hold Emma uh, liable for um, the danger that Madison is putting on herself and to others. Um, if we hold that the orca is in fact, though, a weapon, like a gun, maybe not. <laughs> there, it raises an interesting question with the cases for parental liability of a child's acts because uh, those limits are capped at a, you know, depending on what state you're in. Mm -hmm. Some states are like a thousand, some are 2000. California's at 25,000. So if Matt, you know, when you look at Ghidorah, <laughs> like smashing buildings and cars, you know, like, does that mean like their homeowner's insurance has a $25,000 claim for each item that's destroyed because Madison called Monster Zero to the Green Monster. That's the, that's an interesting question, uh, but things are so destroyed and flattened, people are just gonna go, we're done. Let's, uh, it was cold here anyway, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's probably quite warm, but <laughs> <laughs> Not in a good way, so. <laughs> in a glowing fish sort of way. Exactly. Uh, Speaking of that, let's talk about, uh, you know, the kind of a hot button uh, political issue with, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Sirizawa just leaving a Senate hearing and, and, the, and the, you know, the Senate chair rightfully being upset at him because he got up and, you know, he didn't say like, Madam Chairwoman, there's a giant emergency here. We have to take care of this. Here, here it is, we gotta go right now. And they probably go like, okay, adjourned. Like that would have been the normal way that somebody could handle this, not get up and walk out. Like, like you- And leave them with what appears to be Japanese porn. Yeah. I mean, just, 
<laughs> and they blurted out and that was awesome. But, uh, <laughs> and there are so many horrible issues with that, but it's, uh, <laughs> oh, 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 Lordy. Uh, leave that can of worms unopened. <laughs> nope, nope, this is not an After Dark episode. But um, uh, when, you, when you think about that, it's like, you shouldn't do that. Now, you interned, um, uh, you were a Senate page, weren't you, or interned? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was a Senate page back in, that was spring of 2007. So I actually, yeah, I worked for the Senate during that uh, semester in high school. So that, that's, I mean, I interned at the uh, California State Assembly back in 99, so much younger then. And uh, so let's, let's talk about, like, since you have more clearly, the only one on this podcast with experience there, like what's your reaction to, to that and what kind of remedies could the Senate enact by Sirizawa uh, getting up and walking out of a hearing? Sure. Well, to share just a short bit of perhaps the personal insight, uh, the Senate is um, far more than the House of Representatives, all about decorum and propriety, and it has a lot of norms that you don't break. For example, you're not allowed to go out on the floor of the Senate if you're a man um, without a suit and tie. You have to have a coat, a jacket and a tie. For a woman, it's a little bit different. It's the, I'm pretty sure it's just the jacket, really. Um, but uh, as, a, as a really quick trivia thing about that, I once saw uh, Joe Biden, then a senator, trying to run onto the floor of the Senate because uh, a debate was happening that he wanted to get his two cents on. But he had clearly out been jogging and was wearing a gray sweatsuit and sneakers. And uh, so wasn't allowed to go on the floor of the Senate. Turns to the staffer who's telling him, sir, sir, you can't go out there. He says, son, give me your jacket, <laughs> puts on this uh, guy's jacket and tie over his gray sweats and goes out on the floor. But that's, I mean, it's a silly story, but that's what the Senate is about. <laughs> um, and so the idea that during this, like he said, he's going to march out of there without so much as a word and leave them with, you know, a blurred out pornographic movie playing on the screen, um, they would be immensely offended. It would be such an incredible breach. Um, and there, so there are remedies. So we assume, first of all, Almost certainly that was not a voluntary appearance. Um, so you could voluntarily choose to arrive, in which case, if it's a voluntary appearance, you actually can leave. There was a little showdown um, uh, earlier, I think, uh, like uh, within the month um, between, I think it was Secretary Mnuchin and uh, the House Appropriations Committee. And um, he kept saying, I have to go somewhere, I have to leave, can we adjourn? She didn't, the chairwoman didn't want to adjourn, um, but he could have left. Uh, so he was sparing there voluntarily. It's a little bit different though, if you have been subpoenaed. And so you are not there voluntarily, you are there under force of law. Um, and so we can presume for purposes of this, because it's more fun to analyze, of course, that Sarazaw was there <laughs> by subpoena um, since they've been, it seems at the beginning of the movie, denying Congress a lot of information that they very, very rightly um, uh, should have access to, which is namely the location and even just number of how many kaiju are actually out there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's never made fully clear what Monarch's actual relationship to the government is. Is it NASA? Is it more like SpaceX? <laughs> um, uh, they have a lot of military personnel and equipment working with them or for them or um, it's, it's really hard to say. <laughs> um, it, it, it gets, you have to look at both Kong Skull Island where it looks like it's a U.S. agency and John Goodman is begging for money to go to Skull Island in, in that movie. So it's like, okay, so it's the redheaded stepchild agency tasked with finding giant monsters and no one wants to fund it. The, one of the comics, I think it was Awakenings, which had mm -hmm. some continuity errors in it, 
made it sound like it was a joint Japanese American organization, you know, in the early days of the Cold War when they realized they woke something up. And so that could put it into like a NATO or a CETO type category that's kind of like a NASA but focused on monsters. It's super weird. They clearly didn't have a lawyer writing the script because <laughs> I don't think there are people are seeing the movie to go like, well, what's the function actually like? Because, you know, they're running around on, on the USS Argo, which is a giant flying aircraft carrier, and the USS is United States ship. So right. a, <clears throat> the only uniform people are, are Americans. So it's not like, it doesn't look like a UN operation. Fun it, trivia fact, the person in charge of the Argo, the, the lady officer, yeah. appears to have both Special Forces and Ranger badges. Um, I don't think there has been a woman yet uh, in both, so that's really amazing. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, again, I, I haven't served. I, I, I think you're, you know, significant other. Uh, yes, my significant other. <laughs> I think, did he point that out or go like, wait a minute, or was it? Yes, that was not my, that was not my catch. That was his catch. Absolutely. <laughs> One of our, you know, a friend of our podcast and, and blogger for us, uh, Thomas Harper, who's a, you know, was a JAG officer. Like he, he catches stuff like that with like, why are they all focused on web belts? Like we don't wear them like that anymore. So like, <laughs> uh, uh, but sorry, to get back to yeah. the issue, though, um, uh, whether, you know, regardless of what actual relationship this organization has with the government, um, there's definitely a congressional, legitimate, lawful congressional interest in legislating about kaiju. <laughs> um, there's, they probably want to pass some emergency legislation, or they want to figure out where they should be building new military bases, and all of that is lawful, lawfully related to Congress's lawmaking power. Um, so now that we've established that, what remedies does Congress actually have to say Arizawa marching out the out of the committee room. Um, so Congress has three options under U.S. law. The first is they can refer Mr. Serizawa to, um, or the case of Mr. Serizawa, to a U.S. attorney for prosecution of criminal contempt of Congress, because there is a crime, criminal contempt of Congress, um, and you can be jailed for that. Um, the second is that Congress, because it has this contempt power, has an inherent contempt power. So that means that they have their own ability with the, uh, I believe it will be the sergeant at arms, to arrest someone who is in contempt of their lawful order and to imprison them. Um, and uh, I just, a little segue about that. It has, been, it has been an object of curiosity since the William Barr proceedings recently as to whether or not there actually is a jail in the US Capitol. Um, and uh, it's, it's not terribly clear, according to the architect of the Capitol and their records, whether or not there's ever been a proper jail that's used only for detentions in the US Capitol. However, there is a long history of there being various rooms that are usually called guard rooms uh, that are used to detain people. They have been since, I think the earliest instance was like the very uh, beginning of the 1800s, um, at least in terms of documented instance. Yeah, uh, getting getting thrown into the speaker's you know, closet does not sound fun, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I wouldn't, I'd be okay with it if that happened, but that's just me. But uh, It depends on for how long, though, I will say. <laughs> There's um, that. <laughs> that's what's interesting about contempt, and this is the same with judicial contempt, is um, they can keep you in there pretty much as long as they want until you decide to comply with the order. You can challenge it if you don't think it's a lawful exercise of the contempt power. Um, but 
I mean, yeah, you can just go to jail for a really long time because you're saying no to the judge or in this case to the senator. Yeah. Um, so even if it's a comfortable closet, you might want to think hard about that. <laughs> um, but then the third action, of course, or the third option, of course, which is the most commonly used one, um, is civil action to enforce a subpoena in court. Um, and it's interesting because I believe um, you've mentioned before that there, there is an OLC opinion um, regarding whether or not you can do option um, number one, I believe, or number two on an officer of the executive branch, um, as opposed to option number three, which is just to go to court and litigate the subpoena. Um, so this now matters as to whether or not Monarch is some kind of federal agency um, or if it's a private organization. Um, because if it is, in fact, part of the executive branch, um, if, it's, if it's NASA, if it's not SpaceX, uh, then Congress probably couldn't um, refer them to a U.S. attorney for prosecution. And the reasons for that are pretty good. Um, you know, if you just happen to have a president who is not in the same party as either uh, House of Congress, um, you don't really want, you know, their cabinet uh, officers or their advisors to be living under the threat of just getting thrown in jail <laughs> or criminal prosecution with the threat of jail um, because they are disagreeing with Congress over a subpoena. Um, that seems to be like it have too much of a chilling effect and it doesn't take too much imagination to imagine that happening to a president you like. Um, so, uh, but even if they are an executive uh, uh, branch, they could probably take the action to, they could definitely take the action to civil court um, and litigate it. Uh, and I think, so Josh, do you think they could do option two and actually just uh, have the U.S. Sergeant at Arms take Sir, Sir, uh, Sarazawa down to the uh, 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 closet in the... <laughs> U.S. Capitol. I think they could, but I don't think they should. I think the, I think having the Sergeant of Arms grab him and bring him back, that's well within their right because he walked out of a hearing and if they were subpoenaed, it's like you don't get to do that because it's a co-equal branch of government. The giant flying airplanes with an American flag painted on the tail that U.S. Uh, military personnel are flying they have the Congress has a right to know what the hell's going on. Like that's absolutely within their duties as a branch of government to go. You're asking us to pay for this. These things are a clear and present danger to us as a species. Tell us what's going on because we're giving you all these toys. And, and especially tell us how you're spending this money. If those bases are secret and they're secret from Congress, um, then they must be getting budgets back from a monarch that just have, you know, giant blocks for something that miscellaneous. This was a $4 million hammer. And this was <laughs> the, the, these uh, lag bolts were each uh, $10,000. And it's like, really? Really, you know, it's like <laughs> we've had skunk works before. Like we have secret projects, and God knows whether or not Aurora is a real airplane or not. Uh, but it's okay if we have cool secret stuff. You know, there there was the joke that uh, Aurora was a seventeen-page typo given to Congress, and <laughs> if that story's true, like awesome. It's like you know, like, and again, I don't know if it's true or not, if that really happened, but like if, if, you know, in the eighties that happened, like here's a 17 page typo, excuse me, you know, like we have, we have a base where, you know, and it does what you like, they would want to know. And like, that's why we have that nice secret chamber that's soundproof, you know, and it'd be one thing Sarazawa said, like, we're going to have to do this, you know, in the, you know, uh, cone of silence where no one else can hear us. 
because of you know the sensitivity of this. Right. We don't want anyone waking these things up? No one should go try writing the giant. For the level of panic that might ensue, just at the fact that, you know, that knowing how many of them are out there, you might cause a lot of damage just through that. Yeah, there's a giant one napping under Seattle. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to have an immense traffic jam and human stampede. Yeah, yeah it's like, is everyone just <laughs> up and it's like, and we're all moving to Reno. That's what we're doing now. But, <laughs> but the soundproof room is exactly what what Congress has figured out is the solution. So there, there's a very real world problem about this with, for example, the CIA, not wanting 400 or I guess it's 535 members of Congress to all know exactly what they're doing with their super secret programs. However, you can't also keep it entirely from uh, Congress because they're the ones spending the money. So I believe, and I'm not quite as well researched on this, but I believe the compromise solution was there's a small committee um, in the Senate uh, a, gr a small group of senators that does have access to that information, but they go to a room and they review it <laughs> and they don't distribute it and they don't talk about it. Yeah, and there's a, again, since it's campaign season, uh, you know, Senator Harris from California has talked about, she, she's on that and she talks about people forget politics very quickly when they're in there because everyone goes in, jackets come off and like everyone's paying attention to what happened? What's going on? And like, and like, Partisan lines go away very quickly when there's scary information. Probably the same would happen with, so there's a giant monster. It's under Toledo. Um, we don't want to wake it up. This thing's big. Um, we don't know how to get everyone out of there without everyone screaming and running around like Kermit the Frog with his arms up in the air. Um, so what do you need to know? And, like, and everyone would be like stone cold. Yeah. Okay. Um, we have to evacuate. Alrighty. And like, and like they, would <laughs> they, they would figure out what to do. And exactly. Uh, but you can't do it like, surprise, uh, monsters. Uh, now, the public is right to be upset. And mm -hmm. I, think, I think this goes into the next issue that we could talk about, because it's going to tie to why Congress would be ramped up, is that it appears from... Um, uh, Emma, you know, Russell's uh, PowerPoint presentation that she prepared for her evil villain speech, that, which again... <laughs> that was such a weird moment in the movie. I just got to say, I actually turned to my boyfriend during the movie and said, wait, so she, she prepped this little video now that she's showing to them? <laughs> do, you, do you see? This is my trip to San Francisco. Do you see? Yeah, like that. Yes, yes, she did. Um, that's a, a really real anal retentive bad guy who wants everyone to understand her motivation and why you should agree with her. Because again, visual aids help. It's it's trial presentation one on one. But if San Francisco, <laughs> again. Um, I'm glad you had that reaction. Uh, <laughs> if San Francisco and uh, uh, Las Vegas are condemned, you know, like people can't live there anymore, co Congress would be super, super into this of like, so we had to evacuate the San Francisco Bay Area because we had radioactive monsters. Uh, one got embedded in the building and cleaning them up was not fun. And one was floating in the bay, contaminating it. And we detonated a nuclear weapon off the coast on accident because the plan was bad. Uh, now everyone had to get a shower at the same time where you have lawsuits over that. And 
Silicon Valley is empty. Rent is totally affordable if you don't mind cancer. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but the, that's, that's not. So the way that the, the law works with taking private property, normally you would need just compensation for, through an eminent domain proceeding. Well, if there's a giant emergency taking place, uh, environmental uh, contamination that poses a public health risk, like, in, like this has happened after, like, say, big earthquakes, the government can just take the property because of the emergency nature. And mm -hmm. giant mushroom cloud off the coast, giant radioactive bodies, the bay probably contaminated from all everything that everything that just happened all the waters connected so everyone down to san jose up to petaluma and the napa river and you know up the california delta where we have all that farmland if all of that's screwed all those people have to leave and california dies because right southern california gets their water from Northern California. So literally, like if the California gets devastated and basically we just got the Redwoods north of San Francisco left, you know, stuff, you know, Eureka, Humboldt County, that's, that's what's left of California that can be inhabited. That's bad because we have the most people out of every state. Where are they all going to go? So like, do they, do we go to Reno and go like, hey, Seattle's kind of, hip and kind of like a san francisco let's go there uh austin like think of all the you know the the expat san franciscans who are all liberal blue democrats moving to a red state does that i'm actually from arizona so yeah that yeah. would be a big uh that would be a big change for phoenix if um uh you know how many would that be like let's say a quarter of the million san franciscans decide to to plant their flags in, in phoenix things would things would even out now. On the flip side, you know, people who aren't local don't don't realize this, but uh, like Santa Cruz is this unique detente of hippies and rednecks peacefully coexisting, and so it can happen. Um, we have uh -huh. we have evidence, and like everybody's, they're doing their thing. Like they they're there, and you know, my my dad fell into the redneck category living up there, and they're all the hippies. And you know what? They make it work because that's America. Uh, probably <laughs> similar things with like all the San Franciscans, you know, moving to Phoenix and going, well, we're going to have to put kale on, a, on all the menus now. And like, we make it work because that's what we do. But mm -hmm. con uh, congressional seats would shift. Uh, and, and God, I like, I don't know if all of California would get condemned. Uh, but a good chunk yeah. of it. Could you condemn an entire <clears throat> Could a state condemn it, its itself in its entirety? Is that part of its inherent police power? Do you think state can condemn on the under the California Constitution cities and 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 private land? And if if taking it to the logical extreme of if you do virtually everything and it's basically state owned, I don't know if the state reverts into a territory at that point. Oh, now, that's an interesting question. Yeah, because I I don't know if we would you know take it out of the union at that point like i don't know what happens uh because we haven't, we've, we've never had that situation before and hopefully never fortunately will. <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah same thing in las vegas you know and 
Vegas is different because you don't have the water issue. It's, right. uh, you know, like a nuke in the bay is bad and, and has catastrophic environmental effects. A nuke in the middle of the desert is different. And this was a radioactive monster taking a giant hike from Vegas to San Francisco. Right. You know, that's, they, 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 I wonder if they could remediate that somehow. <laughs> but but the, the end of the story is, if we had to condemn large cities, if not a significant portion of California, and then Congress would have really high blood pressure because they wouldn't want that to happen again. Mm -hmm. It's like, imagine, you know, the population of New Mexico, like, you know, having a 90% increase, like just all of a sudden we're making new cities in New Mexico right now because we have to, like, if just, that would be weird. Uh, yeah. And there would be new districts that would be drawn whose Congress people would literally owe their offices to this influx of people from a now condemned state. Yeah, and it was just, you know, it's a wonderful thing about America. We would make it work. Like, I, I have faith in us that we would pull together. It was, it's, you know, you only have to look to what happened after Katrina. Mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, people from, you know, New Orleans and Mississippi were, you know, like they were Texans, they were now Californians. And, uh, you know, California, the California bar did the radical thing of allowing Louisiana lawyers to practice law in California. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, oh, welcome. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> we, you need to make a living. Welcome aboard. And I don't remember if it was temporary or like, you know, if they had a couple years or, or what the final outcome was. But Americans will work together because that's who we are. We're the good guys. And in this fictitious world, they figure out what's going on. But they would be, there would be Senate hearings and Congress would want to know, where are these things? Because we can't have this happen again. And speaking of that, and of course, Americans being the good guys. So at the, in that Senate hearing at the beginning of the movie, the idea is, uh, or the threat is tossed out by the chairwoman um, that uh, explained to me why you shouldn't be under military jurisdiction. <laughs> so this presents an interesting question. Um, it's, it's possible that what she means is that this is uh, NASA, and so they could just increase the amount of military involvement and have officers actually put in charge. But if it's actually more like the SpaceX, um, where it's, it's a secret private organization that is partnering to a certain extent with the military, but is its own thing. Um, what you're really talking about then is nationalization. And that's not something that we have a ton of experience with in the United States compared to some other countries. Um, but so the question then is, um, and I'm presuming there is no martial law at the beginning of the movie, because at the beginning of the movie, it's been five years since the last attack. Um, they, or at least a few years, that they think they're, they're doing okay. Um, but so now we're talking about not in a time of war, not under martial law, can can the government just take over Monarch as an organization, take all its files, figure out where the Titans are, and decide for itself what you ought to do with the Titans and uh, Monarch's various research and assets? Um, the, the principal Supreme Court decision, which I won't talk about too much because it turns out it's not terribly relevant, is a, a Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer. Um, also colloquially known by us lawyers as Youngstown Steel. Uh, it was in April of 1952 during the Korean War that um, President Truman issued an executive order directing the Secretary of Commerce, who was of course Sawyer, 
um, to seize and operate most of the nation's steel mills. Now, this was because there was a threatened strike by the United Steelworkers of America, and we're in the middle of a war, and you don't really want the steel mills to shut down and stop supplying munitions and helicopter parts. Um, and so that seemed like, you know, a pretty urgent thing, and it was, again, in a, in a time of war. Um, the Supreme Court, though, ruled that the president did not actually have the authority to issue that order. Um, and without getting too into the weeds, because like I said, it's, it turns out that it's not terribly relevant. It was basically because there wasn't a law that allowed him to do so, that said that the president can do this. Um, and there wasn't any provision in the Constitution saying so either, um, at least not directly. Um, and so uh, the question, though, is in this case, and the reason why that's not the most relevant, is because monarch is being threatened by a senator. So we can assume the problem isn't that the president is trying to nationalize monarch, because um, the president would definitely not be able to. The issue is, could the legislature do so? Um, in theory, uh, probably yes. So the legislature could pass a law um, that nationalizes it. Um, uh, I mean, so it would be not all that dissimilar from the manner in which the United States government took over um, airline security industry um, after 9-11, um, having decided that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't good enough in private hands with the airlines being responsible for it. Um, uh, the issue, of course, is that you would have to be careful in how you craft that law, because any law that Congress, is, uh, Congress passes, unlike state laws, which have pretty much plenary um, power, is they have to be grounded in an enumerated power in the Constitution. So this is the problem that the Affordable Care Act um, ran into, although it eventually succeeded, but was the challenge was grounded in the idea that I don't see the part in the Constitution that says Congress can legislate this um, in this healthcare business. Um, it was defended under the Commerce Clause, but an event eventually upheld instead under the taxing and spending clause. Um, but so similarly, you would have to find some specific enumerated power, again, because national security is kind of, you know, definitely in there. <laughs> uh, or they're probably going to be able to pass the law. Monarch should take that threat very seriously. Yeah, and the other way to think of it is, if it's not private, because I, I do think it's a branch of the government and, you know, mm -hmm. somehow, my thought would be, Again, the Coast Guard's gone through a couple changes. When it was just under the Department of Transportation in mm -hmm. World War II, the Coast Guard got lumped, you know, got absorbed by the Department of Navy during World War II because of times of emergency. Monarch could have a similar situation of, you know, like during times of war or a Kaiju attack that it gets lumped in with uh, the Department of Defense. And if that's the way that they want to look at it, um, that would make sense. I do think it, it is really squirrely because again, this, the, the screenwriter didn't think about this, you know, they, and like, I'm not, I'm not faulting him because I, you know, like I was cheering like a 10 year old throughout this movie with all the fight stuff because that's, that's the type of guy I am. But, uh, yeah, it's, it is murky. Um, I do think it's clearly interwoven with the government. Uh, I do think Congress has a right to legislate it. Uh, if we have abandoned, they appear to be a government contractor. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolute. That's a wonderful analogy. Um, At the very minimum. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's not some benevolent billionaire that's figured out how to do this. It's like, hey, I wanted to shame NASA into going back to the moon, and no, this, this was yeah. a real problem. Um, and as you mentioned in the Skull Island one, they were directly trying to plead for, for government funding. So they, they, almost, they at least definitely are a government contractor. <laughs> yeah, and at the, uh, the, at the 
end credit scene of Skull Island, you know, you have, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, Loki and Captain Marvel being held captive and, uh, you know, saying like, hey, I won't tell the Russians and, you know, like, I will tell the Russian. So clearly, <laughs> you're like, national security is important to what's going on here. So, right. uh, uh, but yeah, it's just, it's just murky. Uh, I think the moral of the story here is that every Hollywood writing team worth their salt should have a lawyer to advise on staff. Absolutely. And we're available. So, you know, just call us yeah. up. We have reasonable rates. I, I, yeah, I will do it probably free of charge. Yeah, it's, if we get to go to the premiere, we're good. You know, like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's, we just wanna, doesn't have to be the big one. It could be the second one. You know, just, just we want to be there. Uh, so lots of... Uh, uh, fun stuff here. Um, There's one issue that I really, really, really want to talk about, which is uh, closely related to what we just talked about. Um, are we going to Boston? Uh, oh, um, uh, is, is that where you're going? If not, you know, hit me. Where, where are we going? Where are we going? Go to Boston first. I'll do this yeah. second. Okay. Yeah. Boston smashed. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, you know, I saw the movie twice, and something I noticed in D.C. and Boston is because of Ghidorah's, you know, f storm that follows him, there's massive flooding. So much flooding that we have U.S. warships in downtown D.C. And it's like, so destroyers... I didn't notice that detail. I have to watch it again. <laughs> so, like, on the mall, there are destroyers and what looks like a flaming aircraft carrier that probably wow. got too, too close. And when they're doing the charge to take up uh, uh, Ghidorah at the Green Monster, with you know the the you know the classic music playing and everything, and, and it is such a chest pounding awesome scene. It's like that destroyer looks downtown Boston now. Like they're dodging buildings as they're charging. God knows how they know the depth that they're not going to run aground. There's all kinds of problems with that, but that means there's massive flooding taking place as well, deep mm -hmm. enough for warships to get into cities and that's that's bad because the the flood damage i mean, like do people in boston have flood insurance of that magnitude and is all of that moot when we see i mean th there are so many homages to other godzilla movies especially from the the hezai era mm -hmm. where we have you know burning godzilla and then the the like the the atomic pulse which again, because it looks like Godzilla's powering up to shoot his breath and the nuclear pulse goes off and he does that twice. Yes. How, how much radiation was kicked out from that? Like, is that now like one of the most irradiated parts of the planet? Because it's he, gotta be. <laughs> like he does it twice and then he melts down like in releasing the vast amount of energy. Could anyone go there again? Like how long would it take for that to dissipate? You know, and I can see that, you know, they're playing, you know, we thought Bikini Atoll would be like, like forever free of human, humans going back and life, life is there. So like the, uh, the, the wreck of the Saratoga, that was one of the carriers that we had there, there's stuff, you know, there's sea life on it and everything. So some of the half-lives that we thought would happen aren't as bad. Then you look at Chernobyl, like that's bad. Um, we're not going back. Uh, Although there actually is a lot of tourism there now, but yeah, that's not smart tourism. Um, <laughs> and that might be Darwinism right there of, uh, go, 
Yeah, um, don't do that. Award worthy, yes. <laughs> you read the warning label very carefully on that vacation. Uh, yeah, Boston, I think, is toast at this point. There's all kinds of also legal questions about that. So, um, you know, is this a, like, it, does the government have like super fund ability to go? Who is responsible for cleaning it up? Well, uh, yeah, this exceeds anything that's happened before, like any act of war or anything, because like with the, you know, 2014 Godzilla, I did a little research about like airplane crash, like airplane crashes in the middle of a town. Okay, that's bad. People died. People are going to the ER because everyone's having a bad day. The town couldn't recover from the airline for the crash, saying like, you know, the court said, your job as a government is to provide emergency services. That's your purpose for existing, so no recovery. On the flip um, side, yeah, toxic torts are different. So like an oil spill is different. Mm -hmm. What are we with a Godzilla? And a Godzilla is a big animal. So what happens there? Um, or do we just throw our hands up in the air and go like, this is why governments exist. We're all Keynesian now. We're going to do some deficit <laughs> spending. And like, it's just what we got to do because the future's, the future generations are going to pay for this because that's just the way it's going to be. Um, we might, and who knows? It could be like a Republican president doing that. Yep. All right. Throwing out everything I believe. <laughs> and we're deficit spending <laughs> like crazy. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's a tricky question, and I think also like a, a depending on how how difficult it is to clean up because this is something um, that you were talking about, Josh. But it's also possible that the monsters absorb some of at least the radiation. So you know, depending on how bad, bad I think, and how costly, uh, also determines how politically feasible it would be to actually fund the cleanup. Because I know that there would be some really big Bostonian, you know, diehard Bostonians who want to go back in no matter what the cost. But if the cost ends up being in the, you know, we're going to have to spend the GDP of the country for the next 10 years, <laughs> I don't think anyone other than Bostonians will vote for that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, do you know what? Rhode Island's nice. Why don't you, uh, we're all going to Maine. Hey, hey, West Virginia, let's, let's go. It's like, they'll, they'll welcome you. There's plenty of space in lots of the country, yeah. <laughs> it's just, we, we, could, we could build some more towns. Like, we're going to be okay, you know? And maybe that's the answer, because what's the most cost-effective thing to do? And if it's too costly, or the technology doesn't exist to clean it up adequately, we can only contain it, we might just have to go, okay, we might, we'll, hopefully we'll get back one day, but right now we need a, a place for the people of Boston to live. We need a place for the people who are in DC and probably, I don't know, a good chunk of Virginia, uh, probably a good chunk of Maryland as well. Yeah, I did notice in the movie that my apartment does not survive the destruction of DC, so I will need some, some housing for a period of time. And, and you know what? It would be suicide not to, uh, <laughs> especially if the capital has to be moved to someplace like Denver, you know, like with... Uh, There's going to be a 535 to zero vote to, you know, increase the FEMA budget by orders of magnitude. <laughs> and, like, and they probably did that after 2014. Of, uh, uh, but yeah, there, there'd be like, you know, no opposition. Anyone opposed? Well, Leroy's not back, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
Still looking for the senator, but before to one absent. Yeah. <laughs> Count me. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yeah. Sally's on board too, so we're good. His widow, his widow will show up and vote. Yeah. <laughs> if we can find the governor, I'm sure he would appoint someone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah, because it it'd be a bloody mess, and yeah, uh, and like the lawyers, like. Lawyers are going to have nervous breakdowns. Uh, the, the, the insurance industry and underwriters are going to be looking at coverage like nobody's business. Actually, those floods that nobody thought could possibly happen there. Oh, God. It's like, how do you insure against an aircraft carrier crashed through my building because of the flood? Uh, collision? You know, it's, <laughs> I mean, like, DC is a swamp, but like, no one thought it would happen like that. Of, yeah. Like, we got a destroyer on the mall? What? <laughs> and you've talked about this in previous panels that you and I have been on, but you actually don't want this to be considered an act of God for insurance purposes. Isn't that right? Yeah, because it's, then it's not covered. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> exactly. I'm, you, know, the, you know, Grant, we don't want to bankrupt the insurance industry either. So, like, there's that kind of... Um, right. You know, coming I'm up sure with insurance companies after 2014 would have, you know, tried really hard to make sure that there was explicit uh, exclusion for kaiju attack. <laughs> yeah, and Congress. I mean, it would be political suicide for Congress not to have a plan. Yeah. You know, especially if after the events of 2014, with two cities being lost or appear to be lost, you would have to have a plan because it's not politically sustainable to ignore the problem which is why the senate hearing looked as uh vicious as it did because they are rightfully upset <laughs> like this, yes. is, this isn't like some blase obscure issue no it's you know it's like hey that's a 300 foot monster that's uh billions of years old and it's super angry um yeah i i, I totally get it so speaking of how costly this was, this is the question that I really want to make sure we talk about, which is um, liability, every lawyer's favorite word, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so it's to me, so one of the things that really stood out to, to me when I was watching the movie, and let me know if you had the same reaction, Josh, but if I were running a secret facility to contain something that could destroy entire cities at a whim, I would probably have better security measures <laughs> uh, than what we see in the movie, um, which appears to be that except for when the military and the Argo get called in because they think there's about to be an attack, appear to be pretty much unsecured. <laughs> I don't see any of those guys running around with guns until they're trying to take back the base. Um, so this raises the question, of course, is Monarch liable for this ridiculous failure to secure the Titan sites. Um, did you have the same reaction, first of all? I just want to know. <laughs> so uh, I did, but it was answered. Because when they're landing at Outpost 32, mm -hmm. uh, Emma's provided security codes. So they're able to get in that way. And there's the acknowledgment over the radio about uh, Sirozawa having them all on high alert. So they did not uh, expect Emma to be a traitor. Uh, however, it was very foolish from a security perspective not to like scramble the codes after something happened 
um, or if they did. It seems to me that there's a serious lack of, of armed personnel at the facilities, regardless if you have the right codes. Yeah, and, and they, it's not a terribly large group of terrorists that takes each of these facilities. Yeah, especially, yeah, well, yes. Uh, we're not quite sure how big either of them were personnel-wise, we can assume that they're not all on duty at the same time. That's true. At least at, at the China facility. You know, there's the conceptual issue of how many people do you want there? You know, like for purposes of operations and also the more people we know, the less secret it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you then throw in, uh, you know, supplying people in Antarctica. I mean, that... The, <laughs> I mean, the, the base looked big, so... I will say that this is a world in which we have the technology to have an airborne aircraft carrier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the, you know, like the, the Zeppelins of old that could launch, uh, exactly. you know, like the, the Macon and, and others, and on one level, that is pretty cool. And the fact they did that in less than five years is also cool of, uh, you know, so how much money do you need? And the checkbooks... I, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay. But, but yeah, I agree with you that... But so, yes. Um, looking, though, at the question of whether or not Monarch could be held liable. So the first one is whether or not, and you and I disagree a little bit on whether or not there seems to have been reasonable care, um, as lawyers often do, you know, disagree a little bit. Yeah. Different opinions. Um, but so the first thing to look at is actually whether or not it's strict liability. Um, so, because strict liability, of course, means that we actually don't care whether or not you seem to have taken reasonable precautions. Um, and strict liability is typically imposed for uh, what's considered you know, inherently dangerous activities or instrumentalities. It's called, in, in the legal term, it's ultra-hazardous. So this is like dynamite. <laughs> we don't really care how carefully, um, what kind of procedures and stuff you had in place and how reasonable they were when you were handling the dynamite. If you, uh, if, if someone died as a result of your use of the dynamite, we just, we're, we're going to make you liable. Um, it's not quite as unfair as it seems. So first of all, you know, there, there is, you can, you know, cross sue another defendant if you think someone else ought to be paying, um, uh, even though you're being held on the hook. Um, but so, you know, that's one of the reasons why, for example, we don't store explosives in a city apartment. There are, there are no explosives in, in my apartment. <laughs> um, in order to prove strict liability, you have to show that, of course, Monarch was engaged in an ultra-hazardous activity, that you were injured, um, and that the harm that you experienced could have been anticipated as a result of that ultra-hazardous activity. Um, uh, and of course, that the, the defendant was a substantial factor in causing it. But the, the, that second to last bit that I mentioned is important because if the harm happened in a way that isn't expected from, for example, the dynamite, <laughs> um, then uh, I'm actually having a hard time imagining a harm that would not be anticipated as a result of dynamite. I think actually this might have been, there might have been, if I'm remembering correctly, a case involving an explosion um, at a train station in which uh, the, the, the sound, the explosive blast caused something to fall on someone at the train station. Paul's um, graph. That, there we go, exactly, that one. <laughs> Foreseeability, yes, Paul's yes. graph. Causation, um, yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so, but it has, yeah, so it has to be linked to it. The thing is, so here, I think, first of all, there's a very reasonable argument that kaiju and the study of them or the containment of them, anything to do with them is probably an ultra-hazardous activity. 
um, you know, experimenting with the orca on Mothra was probably an ultra hazardous activity, anything to do with them. Um, so probably you don't even need to prove that Monarch actually took any kind of unreasonable precaution because uh, they'll probably be strictly liable. The other way to invoke strict liability here, which I think is a topic you like to talk about a lot, Josh, is uh, are the kaiju animals? Because <laughs> um, in a lot of uh, jurisdictions, you impose strict liability when injuries are caused as the result of an animal that you were in possession of. So do you want to talk about that for a second? Oh, well played. Uh, <laughs> very well played in, in linking the legal issues there. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, so if you are in control, you know, like if you have your pet bear, you know, like if it mauls someone, you're on the hook for it. You have to protect people from your pet lion. Oh, he just likes to snuggle. It yeah, it's like... And it doesn't matter how reasonably uh, your, your cage was built or... <laughs> No, if if Fluffy gets out and eats somebody, you're done. It's like that's all on you. So I do think, um, I think from a strict liability sense, it it, it does inv involve suing a governmental agency, you know, potentially on strict yeah, liability. Yeah, yeah. And, and so like um, there there are issues with that because it's um, and I'll, I'll share a non-animal example of that. But um, on one level, the government's probably going to be on the hook anyway. But I think it paints more of an uh, indemnification issue for an American base where uh, a giant titan got out and then smashed up a uh, town in Mexico. That could go to the United States has to pay Mexico for all the damages that that town endured. Uh, the Now, the funny thing, there were people who sued for... Uh, nuclear weapons tests in Nevada. People who had like cracked houses, cracked windows, no recovery. That so there was no recovery, uh, you know, against the government for them testing weapons. So I don't know if you can make a similar argument about a kaiju mm -hmm. of of what we're dealing with here, but um, it is something to consider. Uh, but I do like the animal analogy, and I really do think that I mean, I'll, I'll be, ultimately the federal government's going to have to do bailouts because right. states can't do it because we don't want states' deficit spending to that degree. Uh, the insurance industry would vaporize. There'd be nothing left. <laughs> uh, so uh -huh. that's, that's bad. Um, like they'd, they'd be in bankruptcy so fast and then want to protect their assets and everyone who like lost a home gets you know like a thousand dollars where it's like well, it was a million dollar home well not anymore here's your thousand dollar payout uh so it's like it's up to the feds at that point to bail everybody out so a quick question also is uh would this be covered by the federal torts claim act <laughs> i because of the you know the traitorous activity of emma I don't think so. Like, if it was just... Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, because if it was, like, because, like, fraud isn't covered, 
you know, and like, it's not just like a breach of contract type action. Yeah, yeah. So it exempts a lot of intentional torts. Yeah. Um, and this is also a case where, and this is kind of, I think you, you also touched on this when we, you were just talking about indemnification. But even assuming that Monarch isn't itself an organ of the state, but is, let's say, a contractor, because we, I think we agree at minimum, it's got to be a state contractor. Uh, this, the government will usually indemnify um, uh, a contractor that's doing something on its behalf if what it's doing is within the scope of that contract or its duties. So Emma doing this other thing, which we would probably term ultra vires thing, <laughs> um, is certainly acting outside of whatever contract that they have. So she's not going to be indemnified by the state and is probably doing an intentional tort that is also going to possibly absolve the government of any tort liability here. So instead, you're right. What you would probably be looking at is um, some kind of political solution as opposed to succeeding in a suit against the government. What would, I mean, massive law lawsuits would take a horrific amount of time and it doesn't get people it wouldn't look good for the government either if they kept fighting no. those actually <laughs> we, we don't want you know the city of boston and god knows how much of massachusetts and virginia dc maryland living in fema trailers like they would want to fix that as quickly as possible and again that might require us moving to utah and denver so, like, get ready for some change. I'll, I'll move back to Phoenix. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, the big spider took out a good chunk of Phoenix, but still, like, there's a... Yeah. Boy, howdy, that was in Sedona. Um, and then it just kept moving. Uh, but don't worry, a lot of the West is a-okay. Montana should be nice. I mean, there's a lot of places. Yeah. It's a big country. Uh, we'll, we'll make room. We got it. Um, but, yeah, the feds would have to get out the checkbook yeah. because there's no realistic way to do this with the traditional solutions that we have mm -hmm. as a society because it, it exceeds yeah let's um um i, I want to talk about something related to this and that's the nuclear weapon depiction in this story mm -hmm. okay so it's a godzilla movie and it's supposed to be fun and we're all here to see them fight Okay, it's like it's it's appealing to like every eight year old in the world right now, and like <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah, it's like I yeah I'm I'm completely fine with that. Um, I'm and I proudly admit like I got my you know 2019 NECA Godzilla toy and I, and he's sitting up on the bookshelf right now and I am proud of that. Uh, but we play with nuclear weapons here in a way that hasn't really been done in a Godzilla movie before. So the, so the atomic pulses are big. Mm -hmm. um, there is, you know, the scene where we realize uh, like they're going to have to jumpstart Godzilla to help them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I actually enjoyed that because there's, a couple messages and a beautiful symmetry that, that took place. So, you know, we have, you know, action dad, Russell, uh, Mark, uh, you know, who's rightfully upset about losing a son. So, like, he, he is rightfully upset. Like, any parent should be able to go, like, I understand why you're angry. And he realizes, okay, I have to get over that because the species will die if we don't help Godzilla. So like he, he's making peace with that. And Sirizawa, who looks like amazing for a 76 year old, um, <laughs> if they only had said his grandfather's watch, 
Ah, but um, yeah, yeah. that would have solved so many age problems. Um, you know, like he's looking at his dad's watch and going like, okay, we're going to have to use a nuke in order to, to do this. And it goes against everything that I believe in. Okay. I was okay with that. And especially with him setting off the bomb with Godzilla because the symmetry to 1954. Because at the end of the 1954 movie, it's Sirizawa sacrificing himself with the oxygen destroyer to kill Godzilla. And he dies with the weapon, so that way it can never be made again. Good, powerful message, and it is a beautiful scene. We have the exact opposite of that with Sirizawa saving Godzilla mm -hmm. with the weapon he doesn't want to use which is, you know, consistent with, with the message of nukes are bad, but we need to do this or else we're all going to die. And I appreciated that uh, mirror image of 54 with Sirizawa, and each time the character is still making the noble sacrifice. Uh, he doesn't see Godzilla as the enemy. Uh, he saw the nuclear weapon as the enemy and knew what he had to do in order to save the Earth. I liked that. Uh, they do play fast and loose with how devastating a nuclear weapon is. And like, so that, I do have a criticism about that because... They play fast and loose with the physics in a number of scenes. <laughs> yeah, because it's just, you know, the, the EMP, the, you know, the, the mushroom cloud, the nuclear winter, you know, all of that's horrific. And, you know, like if you lose a city, all that, you know, like when we had the fires up in Northern California, we, uh -huh. had, we had a light nuclear winter. It, it, you know, it, it wasn't quite described as that, but it's, it was a light nuclear winter with, you know, over 150 miles away. It's overcast, super foggy, you know, it looks like pictures from Venus, not Northern California with how the skies look. And if it was a nuke that went off that took out a big city, it would be worse for, <laughs> and cover a greater distance. So, like, they, they play fast and loose with that. And, and there's I'm, a massive volcanic eruption in Mexico at the same time. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> and, like, I'm like, and I can buy part of the argument that the kaiju absorb it. So, like, that's why it's not as catastrophic. But you still have everything that gets atomized. Yes. <laughs> they didn't absorb what went into the atmosphere. And, uh, and into the water. Yeah, it's just, unless Godzilla's doing laps and just absorbing it like, <laughs> like a whale eating krill, just, you know, don't worry, I got this, guys. And, like, waves. <laughs> we wave back. And, like, like, I, I can live with that. Um, were there uh, elements of that uh, that jumped out to you in the film? Uh, from a legal perspective or just talking about some of the playing fast and loose with physics stuff? <laughs> fast and loose with physics and we can then give, you know... Uh, oh, there are. Okay. So I actually really enjoyed the movie. So I want all of my criticism to be taken with a grain of salt. <laughs> but there's a couple moments in particular. So, um, uh, you know... The physics of, for example, in just speaking about the scene you just talked about, um, the, the nuclear blast launching the submarine out into the air. <laughs> like, so 
if the nuclear shockwave was actually that large, that it would launch the nuclear submarine from what is presumably a very deep depth into the air and then lands on the surface of the water. Submarines are not designed to withstand a, an impact like that, a side impact. That submarine would not have survived with the structural integrity it clearly had. Um, <laughs> my other issue was, um, or my other thing that eventually niggled at me was as okay as much as I love Mothra and I absolutely love that Mothra made um, an appearance in this movie and that she was extremely badass and kicked a lot of butt um, for a giant moth or butterfly <laughs> as it were. Um, the scene in which she first arrives to help Godzilla out against Monster X and uh, spits some webs on uh, Monster X and plasters him to a building it's not entirely clear to me that that should have worked because the building, first of all, they've spent the last, you know, about 10 or 15 minutes of this battle scene having these monsters trampling through large structures. <laughs> it's not clear to me why Monster X doesn't just continue walking in the direction of the building rather than try to pull away. The second thing is buildings are generally not designed to withstand being pulled against from the outside. That's mostly just glass. <laughs> so it's, Monster X probably should have been able to deal with that a little bit better. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, maybe that was, uh, you know, a tribute to the steel workers of America to show oh, to show how our steel industry produces quality steel that can withstand a giant monster landing in it. And except literally Godzilla, I suppose. <laughs> you, know, you know, like the body slam through the building. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But yeah, that was. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, especially with the breach with the submarine because like like we've had our attack submarines do breaches and like it's hard on the hull it's like okay if that thing snapped its keel which is entirely possible like they they could have you know like they might realize we're done this was a great <laughs> but she's done now yep, yep. and uh yeah we're gonna tow her back in and she's scrap and god bless her i love this boat but damn it save the planet uh no i'm there with you um let's let's break down a little bit more with with the movie like with likes and or any dislikes and something that i found surprising is emma is never redeemed she mm -hmm. never backtracks on her belief she leaves uh, uh you know the terrorists to go save her daughter not because she realizes what she did's wrong so she never, and she never recants never admits that what she was doing was incorrect it i'm purely self-motivated and it's like wow you got lots of pe parents lost lots of their kids because of what you did there are a uh, lot of emmas and uh, action dads out there now <laughs> yeah it's like and it's like you caused this you've made orphans like you, you have parents who've lost their kids and that's all on you and you don't seem to care but you want your little girl back. And that is so self-centered. Yeah. Um, on one level, I do appreciate her being committed to being a villain. So like, that's nice of, I learned from my mistake, you know, like there's none of that crap. <laughs> um, and she does, apparently, I think she does feel bad, like with a couple scenes, but she never backs down. And so it's also a little unfortunate that the thing that she does feel most strongly is the to to put it bluntly the stereotypical woman thing which is you know protecting your child 
Um, so it's a little bit of a shame that rather than, you know, thinking a lot about all of the human beings, the thing that drives her most of all, it turns out, is the maternal instinct. Yeah, yeah, that's purely self-serving as opposed yes, to... Exactly. Uh, and I mean, she, yeah, she believes she's doing the right thing for the planet and society, but it's like, how many billions get slaughtered? Yeah. So, uh, um, and it, it is interesting also because I think Sarazawa, during his um, one of his important monologues, mentions that you know, crises like these present opportunities and even for redemption. Um, so it's it's you know for, foreshadowed that there may be a redemption narrative here. Although I think it's focused mostly on, and I'm forgetting his name again, but Action Dad. <laughs> Yeah, Mark, you know, it's... Uh, exactly, Mark. I think Mark has the redemption, which yeah. is that he wasn't there for his kid the, for the last several years um, because he was dealing with loss, and now he's really there for her. Yeah, it's... And that's <laughs> cool. It's like, I know I screwed up. I'm going to work really hard because I feel super bad, and I'm looking at Rubble. So... Yeah. <laughs> we all got to do better best yeah like that <laughs> so yeah that's that's the world that it's going to be in like I'm, I was cool with that and you know like again I really like part of it is you know Ken Watanabe I mean the man's just so adorable and endearing you just can't help but root for the guy uh it's like yeah can, can we have him talk a little longer I don't care if it's wine pairings like just let him <laughs> you know he could be I reading him Go ahead, yeah. I, he could be reading a menu and I'm down with it. So I, was, I will say that I was very impressed with all of the actors' performances. Um, sometimes the lines that they had were not terribly good lines, but they still managed to make them interesting because their, perform their delivery was so good. <laughs> like, hire good actors, and they did. And, and now this movie was clearly a labor of love for Michael Daltrey, who clearly loved every Godzilla movie. Yes! ever made from from uh the first one to the showa era to Hezai to today the man clearly loves his monsters and god bless him let more people like that yeah. make make these movies uh, yeah so i was really impressed um and i'm sure you can geek out about this much more than i can but i was very impressed with um the manner in which uh he modernized or brought into a slightly more modern aesthetic a lot of the old ideas and old aesthetics um so for example you know monster zero or uh, jidora you know actually shares like a lot of the aesthetic look of the original especially the shape of the heads and things like that um uh but you know modernizes it in a way such that it looks a little bit more realistic to us now <laughs> um uh, it doesn't end up looking like a, anything like a cartoon or, or stop motion and um and similarly with the twins so the twin fairies also modernized that yeah <laughs> with mothra um so yeah i was very impressed with how much he was able to combine being true to the source material really true to the source material but um, making it much more relevant and um, uh, matching modern aesthetics. There's a, one of the scenes when the, in the Battle of Boston where we see Ghidorah flying and he's fl you know through, or like around the city and he's flying like he did in Destroy All Monsters and in the old Showa era, era. It was just like, damn, that boy loves these old movies. And was able to just toss in little Easter eggs and movements like yeah. that. Yeah, 
while at the same time updating Ghidorah. So, you know, like the, the heads acting like snakes as opposed to like dragons or in the tail with the, like the rattlesnake type. Oh, that was so cool. <laughs> it was just like, good. You know, it's like, man clearly loves this stuff. And this mm-hmm. movie is a giant love letter to fans who've enjoyed these films for the last 65 years. Uh, so that, I mean, like, it was super endearing. It was absolutely mm-hmm. endearing to see that. Um, what, you know, are there any scenes that really stood out to you that, you know... Oh, Mothra's sacrifice! <laughs> if there's one, I mean, if that's, that was my honest, honest-to-goodness knee-jerk reaction there. <laughs> um, uh, I, you know, I, I, Mothra is, uh, I think it's been the second most popular kaiju after Godzilla, um, but particularly the most popular amongst women, and I am no exception here. I absolutely love Mothra, and I loved the rendition of her in this movie. And, um, you know, the scene where she's finally, you know, in her extremely wounded state, climbing up on top of her friend, <laughs> Godzilla, uh, and does the last act to save him and give him her life energy. It was I honestly found that more moving than anything that happened with the humans for the entire movie. Here's the thing. First, good. Secondly, (laughs) uh, I I have multiple geek girlfriends that I've given Mothra t-shirts to as gifts for birthdays and Christmas because they love that character. And I think I might be due for one of those shirts. (laughs) Uh, I I know sources. Um, I'll send a note to your boyfriend and uh, That's perfect. Um, give him, give him some advice. And uh, I agree. The, uh, this movie is the first time we saw Mothra and Rodan fight. Mm-hmm. And that was so cool. I mean, aerial slugfest between the two of them and, you know, Rodan clearly looks more lethal, but Mothra's scrappy and determined and, the fact they gave her a stinger to stab yes. him through the back. And that was, it was just like, you know, people cheered in the theater when that happened was like, rock on. Yeah. Take, take him down. <laughs> and <laughs> I, it, it was cool. So, uh, um, I, and one other, another a potential Easter egg in that scene is, um, so my understanding and you know, this was a little bit before my time, but, uh, in the movie involving uh, Godzilla eventually actually dying and saving his son, um, there's a scene in which Rodan, uh, Rodan actually performs this final sacrifice. Um, and so it's interesting that in this movie, uh, Mothra fights Rodan, but ends up actually performing Rodan's character role in that scene in which she instead gives her life force to uh, to Godzilla. So I think that may have been another Easter egg thrown in there. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because like I watched, I was like, Wait a minute. Was that? It's either Godzilla against Mechagodzilla two, or um, some of these. Blurred, yeah. Some of these blurred. <laughs> um, but yeah, Rodan is trying to save Baby Godzilla, um, and then eventually, in order to save Baby Godzilla, sacrifices himself to give his power to Godzilla. Um, uh, in this case, though, it's Mothra uh, defeating Rodan who who does that uh, act of self sacrifice. 
And, and these two have you frequently- You have assured me that Mothra frequently dies and comes back, so I shouldn't be too heartbroken. <laughs> Agreed. And because, you know, there's the reference to they found another egg, which should be a Mothra egg. And, and the director, you know, talked about on Twitter how Mothra represents this life cycle of life, death, rebirth, and that she's aware of it. So perfect. Um, so yeah, so we'll see her again. Um, I do think that's one of the best scenes. Uh, I I love the music of this movie. Uh, the fact oh, that they, yes, and I have the soundtrack, and it's I frequently listen to the soundtrack like while working or doing legal research uh, because it's just so pulse pounding fun, and the way they brought in. Uh, you know, whether it's the chanting or the original uh, uh, Fukube music and just incorporated and weaved it into something modern while retaining its original source material, that is beautifully well executed. And the way that it plays to the fights mm -hmm. is, is exceptional. So it's whether it's, you know, the, the opening march or uh, the old rivals, which is the, the fight in Antarctica, or the Battle of Boston, like all of that stuff. I mean, it's just pulse pounding good. Uh, like this is. Were you, a, were you a fan of the reboot of Battlestar Galactica? Yeah. So this is the same artist who did the soundtracks for both. Yeah. Um, Bear McCreary is particularly known for this kind of he uh, heavy percussive style, um, which I really enjoyed in Battlestar Galactica, and it really worked here, especially because, like you were saying, um, he was able to work in a lot of traditional Japanese uh, chants and percussion and things like that. I think there was, I, I, I sat through the end to see the end scene. So I saw in the credits that there was a, you know, actually a Buddhist chant group that was part of the soundtrack. So they, uh, the director tweeted out of like behind the scenes video with them, like filming mm -hmm. how that was like made. And it's awesome. Like, because they're all like in the robes and the chanting and the drums and everything. It's just like, yes, yes, yes. More <laughs> of that. Do they have but an yeah, album? Yeah, Bear <laughs> McCreary is a very talented composer, and he did not disappoint here. No, and he's done a lot. Uh, he's the, the man's busy, and God bless. <laughs> I'm glad he's getting lots of work because this is, uh, yeah, it's uh, you know when I look at the you know soundtracks I purchased this summer, you know I I got Endgame and I got this one, and it, it's good. I like it. It's so good. The I know. I, I would. I would guess that also the. I'm just from what we talked about before that Sarazawa's sacrifice is probably one of your favorite scenes as well, right? Yeah, uh, it definitely. You know, because again, the the symbolism, the echo from fifty four. Uh, you know, the the fact he knows he knew what he was doing. The fact mm -hmm. he made eye contact. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you know, you know, you know, Sayonara, old friend. Like all, and again, it's Ken Watanabe, so you're automatically drawn in you know, to it, that it's just, I'll go, you know, it's like, rock on dad, you know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> go save the earth, We're, you know, um, rock on, uh, yeah, I just, I, the symmetry I really enjoyed with him, mm -hmm. uh, again, and the fights were good, I mean, the, you know, when you think of a Godzilla movie, or any monster movie, it's like, you, you want to see them fight, and like, that's, yeah. And like yes. they they did they did a great job of that in Kong Skull Island. Like Kong did a lot of great fights, 
and the fight with the, the big skull crawl, crawler at the end was well done. This like turned it up to 11 with, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the fight in Ar Antarctica is good. Uh, the fight in Mexico, it's quick, but it's good. Uh, the, you know, Battle of Boston rocks. I mean, it's just, it's yeah. a nice slugfest of, I mean, like, you know, the fight's good. The finishing move is good. It just, like, you know, foot on chest and opens up on him. It's like, ow. Uh, yeah. Oh my god, that was such a good the the, the scene where you see um, a monster X's head and then you know it, the dust clears and you find out that it's actually in Godzilla's mouth. That was really good because it actually it really got me. I thought they were playing that Monster X survived it. <laughs> nope, nope. He's he did. He did. And uh, unless he saw the end scene, in which case maybe not. <laughs> Yeah, the the you know they they joke that they named the left head Kevin, and um, because like he's the, <laughs> the left head is the one that like, plays with the soldier in Antarctica and is like licking at the ice and it's the center head like trying to refocus him. Well, it's the left head that got bit off. So oh, so, so if Kevin is still there, <laughs> so if Kevin like grows back as the middle head, that could be entertaining or. Um, if they, there, there are all kinds of creative options. Like maybe he's dead, but they grow something else from it. So. Right, right. Because there's genetic material there. Um, but I believe in the original movies, Ghidorah was able to regenerate from pretty much any severed body part. I don't, I, I don't remember. Um, the, there, there've been a lot of great Ghidorah ones. From mm, oh yeah, true. There's there definitely been multiple iterations, and they're not all consistent either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like I'm trying to again, 65 years worth of movies. It's like, uh, <laughs> what happened? Did that happen in Astro Monster? Was that? Uh, which one was that? Was that in the Hezai era? Yeah, like so. There's again that you know. I, I, it's some of them. Some of them I haven't seen in a couple years. But you know. and from a movie making standpoint, I think you're probably right that we'll see something created from Monster X as opposed to just Monster X again. <laughs> and again, I'm okay with that because <laughs> creative is good. I mean the the kaiju that we saw, like the new ones that they made, uh, I really like Behemoth that looked like he's the mix between the primate and the mammoth. Yeah. yeah, with the big, t it's like <laughs> I want only mammal. I think. Yeah, it's like I want that action figure. You know, like that thing was was wicked looking. It's like cool. Um, I initially thought but they also were the the crab spider creature was was gross. <laughs> yeah, with, with the <laughs> mandibles. The Phoenix is that the one in Phoenix? Yeah, because oh, no. with the the mandible things hanging tentacles, yeah. oh. it's like ugh, like that's. That looks slimy and wrong. I don't uh, want that action figure. No, <laughs> I I'm a, that action figure. I can live without that one too. That's uh, <laughs> the the others all look fine by me. And uh, was one of them Muto? Was Muto back there? One of them looked a lot like him. Yeah. So there's there's um uh, if you haven't picked it up, I don't know if you read comics at all, but there's a they did a comic prequel to this called Aftershock. So it, mm -hmm. it takes place right after 2014, and that's another version of the Muto that they think it was woken up by the other two. And what they figured out the life cycle was that this thing was probably the female 
and after mating and having its eggs, most likely killed the male like a mantis, and then starts evolving I... in a different way. Um, <laughs> so that was the theory. Um, so it looked a lot like that. But yeah, so... Okay. Uh, but no, I... There are all kinds of Toho monsters they could do in the future if they keep making these. I mean, I would love to see the gargantuas and, or, because, uh, like, they're fun. I mean, like, they could, they could skip the entire Frankenstein Conquers the World thing and just, like, jump to, like, they exist, and that would be fun. Um, I, Godzilla has a rich history with alien races. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, like, Astro Monster in- introduced the Zillions, and, like, those are the, I mean, like, their, their costumes, like, with the black high collar, like, a gray jumpsuit, um, and, like, the little visor, you know, awesome looking. Like, still the best-dressed alien that, the, that they've done, but there are a couple others, like, two or three others that they've done. So, if they want to go that path, they could, because they acknowledge Ghidorah's alien. So, it's like, yeah. we, just, we just learned there's life outside of Earth. So and it's terrifying. Yeah. So does this thing have siblings we need to be aware of? <laughs> like, why was it sent here? Oh God, is Mama Monster X gonna come calling? <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah. Or was this like a weird WMD that was used? You know, to ah, uh, a la Pacific Rim, kind of. They're sending the kaiju. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it could be uh, all kinds of things. It could be so. Again, just things that you love about these movies and the genre. Uh, you know, like, well, we see a Mecha Godzilla at some point. You know, there's um, maybe that's next. Maybe that's what they figure uh, after studying a Monster X's head. That's what they do. Yeah, I possibly like I. I mean, as much as I love Mecha Godzilla or Mechanicon, if you're going to build a giant robot, why would you make it the mirror image of the creature you want to fight? That doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to... As opposed to, to perfectly designed to kill the creature that you want to fight. Yeah, it's just... So this is its weak spot. So this is what we're going after, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would go with that plan, but I'm just a lawyer. What do I know? Um, <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just want to know what's reasonably foreseeable, and I'm pretty sure... Evil- <laughs> Just making it match is probably going to end in a draw. So it's like, let's do something different. Uh, but yeah, I just, I guess I loved this movie. Uh, it was a ton of fun I to really go see. It it's, uh, and, and hats off to, you know, uh, you know, the writers, uh, the director, uh, you know, everyone who worked on it. Cause they, they made every monster kid happy. Yes. Yes. Um, and yeah, I think they did a really good job of making something that was clearly a fan service for a lot of the people who did know a lot and have been steeped in this this, uh, this franchise for as long as they have, but also making it accessible to people who maybe haven't done that um, and just coming and enjoying a really good kaiju movie. Yeah, and th- that is such an important part of being a fan. It's like, it's okay if you haven't seen anything before. Like, we want new fans. It is absolutely okay. And just do, just do that. And just, yeah. 
we want new people. We'll go over your head, but you will love the movie regardless. And and if it inspires them to go back, I'm like, huh, what's all this old Showa stuff from the 60s? Let's tell, yeah. me, tell me more of this Jet Jaguar and Seatopia. Like, again, good. Like, we want more people on the team. Uh, check it out. Exactly. Come on down, kids. It's for everybody. And yeah, I... I have the big tent view of being a fan. Just bring everybody in, like what you like. It's okay if you can't you know, talk about the 1954 movie in detail. That's fine. It's, it's for everybody. Um, yeah. Now, had you, I, I know you volunteered for a Denver event. Had, had you experienced any of these movies before? Not the old ones. So I've watched pretty much all of the newer kaiju movies. So I've seen the 2014 movie. I've seen Kong Skull Island. Okay. Um, but I had to actually study up on all of the, I consider it lore at this point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all of the original, you know, plot points. And, um, and a lot of it's really interesting. So to me, it's, um, you know, I, I read a lot of mythology when I was younger just because I found it really interesting. And that included Eastern mythology. And so oh. I find it incredible fascinating that you know pretty much I, I'm sure someone will prove me wrong here but a lot of the various kaiju in the Toho in Toho and in you know the Godzilla franchise um, are rooted in various Japanese myths um, so like you know Monster X is uh, probably based off of a myth in Japanese mythology of an eight-headed dragon <laughs> um, that, that did end up getting slain and things like that um, and so there's a lot I think even as someone who didn't grow up you know, watching all of those movies um, in the 90s or the older ones, and I didn't necessarily get too caught up on that either. But just even reading it was super, super fun and fascinating. And on that note, uh, there is a wonderful book called The Kaiju Film by J Jason Barr. And I think this is a, a McFarlane production uh, that goes over a lot of the history and culture for oh uh, that's fabulous and it, and it talks about the different styles of japanese storytelling and what's consistent mm -hmm. in kaiju movies uh it's a i'm, I'm not done with it i've read a, a good chunk of it uh but like just getting the background on it is fascinating and, and you know like what are the elements of a kaiju story and like and how how does it work um because it's something that's purely japanese um it kind of, it's heavily inspired by King Kong, but that's another story of, uh, um, there's a wonderful, I, you know, if you have summer free reading, uh, I'm in the middle of a biography on Ishiro Honda, who directed the first Godzilla movie and did a bunch of the other ones. And it's his life story from growing up, getting sucked into World War II, and it's interesting reading about, he was not on board and how the war gave him feminist qualities because mm -hmm. he uh, was stationed at one of the comfort stations in China. And he was, again, not a happy camper there and didn't like what he saw and what was happening to those women, but it made him a feminist. Mm -hmm. uh, and so his movies, you know, tried to tie in these different messages of like tradition versus modernism and like the conflict that can happen. And those are in some of his movies as well so um again there's a lot you're of gonna have to lend me that when you're done with it i shall uh i shall so yeah there's 
there's a lot of good stuff if you want to get more, you know, a deeper dive into these stories. <laughs> or if any of our listeners want to get more involved. Um, yeah, there's a, one I haven't read yet, but I ordered was the Kaiju Survival Guide, like how to survive. Oh, kaiju. gosh. Yeah, I'll try to read that before Comic-Con. I have an emergency nuclear plan. I'll, I'll come up with an adaptation to the emergency kaiju plan. Yeah, it's, uh, like, I have a buddy who just retired from the Coast Guard, but he did, like, contingency planning for, like, you know, big oil spill, you know, that sort of thing, act of war. And my reply was, so what's the monster attack plan? Or, if not monster attack, uh, do we have a UFO attack plan? And, uh... Uh, he would often joke that I can't tell you. So, uh, anywho, well, listen, um, any other thoughts that you have on this film? Um, let me think off the top of my head. Um, other than, so they do definitely need to have a lawyer on staff. For the next <laughs> one. <laughs> um, you know, to, to elucidate what's actually going on with Monarch and its structure and how it relates to the government. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, the, the questions of who's actually going to pay. I hope the next one starts with, you know, uh, uh, someone who is uh, under siege by lawsuits and trying to dodge service. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Or it could be a Netflix special. It could be a, you know, a special edition on the Blu-ray. You know, it's like, <laughs> it could just be like, you know, five minutes of, you know, lawyers like stressing out, trying to figure out what to do. Like that could be hysterical of you know the, uh, the closing argument in the trial in which the de the lawyer defending monarch <laughs> tries to explain to the jury yeah. or or this you know the senate aide trying to work on legislation who's like now taking yeah. up smoking and drinking it's like it's, <laughs> sally what's wrong have you been working on this it's yeah it's all kinds of fun um my yeah. closing thought is definitely that I hope they bring Mothra back in the next one, and I hope they bring the same kind of amazing cinematography and music, because uh, those were obviously highlights. Well, uh, agreed. Uh, you know, I can't wait for Kong vs. Godzilla. Um, the idea of them fighting is like the idea of mom and dad fighting. It bothers me. I know. Um, <laughs> it's very weird. I love Well, I mean, so there there were classic movies in, with, uh, in which Mothra and Godzilla fought, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Yeah, so there, there is, I mean, the highest grossing movies that Toho did was Kong vs. Godzilla and uh, 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 Godzilla vs. Mothra. Like, those, in the 60s, like, those were the gold standards. <laughs> so I, uh, I don't know where they're going to go. But, um, you know, the, the joke has been who wins, and the answer is the audience. But I... Uh, <laughs> Say, I have figures of both. I really don't want to see them slug it out. That's uh, uh, I don't know who to root for. I love both. So uh, that was um, that was one of the joys of uh, one of those uh, the classic movie in which Rodan does his sacrifice as Mothra pers eventually persuades Rodan and Godzilla uh, to unite with her and fight um, uh, uh, Gohira at one point. So yes, <laughs> Ghidorah, sorry, Ghidorah, yes. Yeah, and yeah, and that was one of the weirder ones where you could they were talking because of the silk and everything. Yeah, it's super weird. So um <laughs> crazy. Um like it's an acid trip. But um we'll see. We'll see. Well listen, uh thank you so much. I you know, hope we can do more of these and Absolutely, Josh. Thank you so much for having me on this. This is a ton of fun. Yeah, it was fun. We had a great time in Denver and 
uh, look forward to you know, future shows and activities together. So absolutely, uh, Josh. So everyone, uh, thank you for tuning in and stay geeky. Stay geeky, America.